Young Sam did not need very much in the way of entertainment. In fact, he made his own entertainment, manufacturing it in large quantities out of observations of the landscape, the stories that had lulled him to sleep at bedtime last night, or some butterfly thought that had just sped across his mind, and increasingly he'd talk about Mr. Whistle, who lived in a house in a tree but was sometimes a dragon. He also had a big boot and didn't like Wednesdays because they smell funny, and he had a rainbrella. Young Sam was thus totally unfazed by the countryside, and ran ahead of Vimes and Willikins, pointing out trees, sheep, flowers, birds, dragonflies, funny-shaped clouds, and a human skull. He seemed quite impressed by the find, and rushed to show it to his daddy, who stared at it as if he had seen, well, a human skull. It had clearly been a human skull for quite a long time, however, and appeared to have been looked after to the point of being polished. As Vimes turned it over in his hands, searching forensically for any sign of foul play, there was a flip-flop sound approaching through the shrubbery, accompanied by a vocal number on the subject of what a person unknown would do to people who stole skulls of him. When the bushes parted, said person unknown turned out to be a man of uncertain age and teeth, a grubby brown robe, and a beard longer than any Vimes had seen before, and Vimes was a man who had often been inside Unseen University where wizards considered that wisdom was embodied in the growing of a beard that would keep the knees warm. This one tailed comet-like behind its owner. It caught up with him when his hugely sandaled feet slithered to a stop, but its momentum meant that it began to pile up on his head. Possibly it carried wisdom with it, because its owner was bright enough to stop dead when he saw the look in Vimes's eye. There was silence, apart from the chuckling of young Sam as the endless beard with a life of its own settled on the man like the snows of winter. Willikins cleared his throat and said, I think this is the hermit, Commander. What's a hermit doing here? I thought they'd up poles in deserts. Vimes glared at the raggedy man, who clearly felt an explanation was called for and was going to deliver it whether it was called for or not. Yes, sir, I know, sir, that is a popular delusion, and personally I've never given it much credence on account of the difficulty of dealing with what I might call the bathroom necessities and similar. I mean, that sort of thing might be all right in foreign parts where there's sunshine and lots of sand, but it wouldn't do for me, sir, no indeed. The apparition held out a grubby hand that was mostly fingernails and went on proudly, Stamp, your grace, although I'm not often stumped. Ha <laughs> ha, my little joke. Yes, it is said Vimes, keeping his eyes blank. Indeed it is, sir, said Stump. The only one I've got. I've been following the noble profession of herming here for nigh on fifty-seven years, practising piety, sobriety, celibacy, and the pursuit of true wisdom in the tradition of my father and grandfather and great-grandfather before me. That's my great-grandfather you are holding there, sir, he added cheerfully. Lovely sheen, hasn't he? Vimes managed not to drop the skull he was holding. Stump went on. I expect your little boy wandered into my grotto, sir. No offence meant, sir, but the village lads round here are a bit frolicsome sometimes, and I had to get Grandad out of the tree only two weeks ago. It was Willikins who found the mental space to say, You keep your great-grandfather's skull in a cave? Oh, yes, gentlemen, and my father's family tradition, see? And my grandfather's unbroken tradition of herming for nearly three hundred years, dispensing pious thinking and the knowledge that all paths lead to but to the grave, and other sombre considerations, to all those who seek us out, who are precious few these days, I might add. I hope my son will be able to step into my sandals when he's old enough. His mother says he's turning out a very solemn young man, so I live in hopes that one day he might be giving me a right good polishing up. There's plenty of room on the skull shelf back in the grotto, I'm pleased to say. 
"'Your son?' said Vimes. "'You mentioned celibacy.' "'Very attentive of you, Your Grace. "'We get a week's holiday every year. "'A man cannot live by snails and herbs of the riverbank alone.' Vimes delicately indicated that they had ground to cover and left the hermit carefully carrying the family relic back to his grotto, wherever that was. When they seemed to be safely out of earshot, he said, waving his hands in the air, "'Why? I mean, why?' Oh, quite a few of the really old ancestral homes had a hermit on the strength, sir. It was considered romantic to have a grotto with a hermit in it. He was a bit whiffy on the nose, said Vimes. Not allowed to bathe, I believe, sir. And you should know, sir, that he gets an allowance consisting of two pounds of potatoes, three pints of small beer or cider, three loaves of bread, and one pound of pork dripping per week. And presumably all the snails and herbs the riverbank he can force down. I looked at the accounts, sir. Not a bad diet for an ornamental garden feature. Not too bad if you throw in some fruit and the occasional laxative, I suppose, said Vimes. So, Sybil's ancestors used to come along and talk to the hermit whenever they were faced with a philosophical conundrum, yes? Willikins looked puzzled. Good heavens, no, sir. I can't imagine that any of them would ever dream of doing that. They never had any truck with philosophical conundra. Later on, Vimes pondered Willikin's accurate grasp of the plural noun in the circumstances, but there you were. If someone hung around in houses with lots of books in it, some of it rubbed off just as, come to think of it, it had on Vimes. They were aristocrats, you see. Aristocrats don't notice philosophical conundra. They just ignore them. Philosophy includes contemplating the possibility that you might be wrong, sir, and a real aristocrat knows that he is always right. It's not vanity, you understand. It's built in absolute certainty. They may sometimes be as mad as a hatful of spoons, but they are always definitely and certainly mad. Vimes stared at him in admiration. How the hell do you know all this, Willikins? Watched them, sir. In the good old days when her ladyship's granddad was alive, he made certain that the whole staff of Schoon Avenue came down here with the family in the summer. As you know, I'm not much of a scholar, and truth to tell, neither are you. But when you grow up on the street, you learn fast, because if you don't learn fast, you're dead. They were now walking across an ornamental bridge, over what was probably the Trout Stream, and, Vimes assumed, a tributary of Old Treachery, a name whose origin he had yet to comprehend. Two men and one little boy, walking over a bridge that might be carrying crowds and carts and horses. The world seemed unbalanced. "'You see, sir,' said Willikins, "'being definite is what gave them all this money and land. Sometimes lost it for them as well, of course. One of Lady Sybil's great uncles once lost a villa and two thousand acres of prime farmland by being definite in believing that a cloakroom ticket could beat three aces. He was killed in the duel that followed, but at least he was definitely dead. "'It's snobbishness, and I don't like it,' Vimes said. Willikins rubbed the side of his nose. Well, Commander, it ain't snobbishness. You don't get much of that from the real McCoy in my experience. The certain ones, I mean, they don't worry about what the neighbours think or walking around in old clothes. They're confident, see. When Lady Sybil was younger, the family would come down here for the sheep shearing, and her father would muck in with everybody else, with his sleeves rolled up and everything and he'd see to it that there was a round of beer for all the lads afterwards, and he'd drink with them, flagon for flagon. Of course, he was a brandy man mostly, so a bit of beer wouldn't have him on the floor. He never worried about who he was. 
He was a decent old boy, her father, and her granddad, too. Certain, you see. Never worried. They walked along an avenue of chestnut trees for a while, and then Vimes said morosely, Are you saying that I don't know who I am? Willikins looked up into the trees and replied thoughtfully, It looks as though there'll be a lot of conkers this year, Commander, and if you don't mind me suggesting it, you might think of bringing this young lad down here when they start falling. I was the dead rat conkers champion for years when I was a kid, until I found out that the real things grew on trees and didn't squish so easily. As for your question, he went on, I think Sam Vimes is at his best when he's confident that he's Sam Vimes. Good grief, and they are fruiting early this year. The avenue of chestnut trees ended at this point. Before them lay an apple orchard. Not the best of fruit as apples go, said Willikins, as Vimes and young Sam crossed over to it, raising the dust on the chalky road. The comment seemed inconsequential to Vimes, but Willikins appeared to consider the orchard very important. The little boy will want to see this, Willikins said enthusiastically. Saw it myself when I was the boot boy. Totally changed the way I thought about the world. The third earl, Mad Jack Ramkin, had a brother called Woolsthorpe, probably for his sins. He was something of a scholar, and would have been sent to the university to become a wizard, were it not for the fact that his brother let it be known that any male sibling of his who took up a profession that involved wearing a dress would be disinherited with a cleaver. Nevertheless, young Woolsthorpe persevered in his studies of natural philosophy, in the way a gentleman should, by digging into any suspicious-looking burial mounds he could find in the neighbourhood, filling up his lizard press with as many rare species as he could collect, and drying samples of any flowers he could find before they became extinct. The story runs that, on one warm summer day, he dozed off under an apple tree and was awakened when an apple fell on his head. A lesser man, as his biographer put it, would have seen nothing untoward about this, but Woolsthorpe surmised that, since apples and practically everything else always fell down, then the world would eventually become dangerously unbalanced unless there was another agency involved that natural philosophy had yet to discover. He lost no time in dragging one of the footmen to the orchard and ordering him, on pain of dismissal, to lie under the tree until an apple hit him on the head. The possibility of this happening was increased by another footman who had been told by Woolsthorpe to shake the tree vigorously until the required apple fell. Woolsthorpe was ready to observe this from a distance. Who can imagine his joy when the inevitable apple fell and a second apple was seen rising from the tree and disappearing at speed into the vaults of heaven, proving the hypothesis that what goes up must come down, provided that what goes down must come up, thus safeguarding the equilibrium of the universe? Regressively, this only works with apples, and amazingly, only the apples on this one tree, Malus Equilibria. I hear someone has worked out that the apples at the top of the tree fill with gas and fly up when the tree is disturbed, so that it can set its seeds some way off. Wonderful thing, nature. Shame the fruit tastes like dog's business. Willikins added as young Sam spat some out. To tell you the truth, Commander, I wouldn't give you tuppence for a lot of the upper classes I've met, especially in the city, but some of them in these old country houses change the world the better. Like Turnip Ramkin— who revolutionised agriculture. Nothing I've heard of him, said Vimes. Wasn't he something to do with planting root crops? Wasn't that how he got his nickname? 
"'Very nearly right, sir,' said Willikins. "'In fact, he invented the siege drill, which meant more reliable crops and a great saving in seed corn. He only looked like a turnip. People can be so cruel sometimes, sir. There was also his brother, Rubber Ramkin, who devised not only rubber boots, but also rubberized fabric, even before the dwarfs did. Very interested indeed in rubber, so I heard, but it takes all sorts to make a world, and it would be a funny old place if we were all the same.' and especially if we were all like him. Dry feet and dry shoulders, sir, what every farm worker prays for. I did a spell cutting cabbages one winter, sir, weather as cold as charity and rain coming down so fast it had to queue up to hit the ground. I blessed his name then, so I did, even if it was true what they said about the young ladies, who I heard actually enjoyed the experience. This is all very well, said Vimes, but it doesn't make up for all the stupid, arrogant— This time it was Willikins who interrupted his master. And then there was a flying machine, of course. Her ladyship's late brother put a lot of work into the project, but it never got off the ground. Flying without a broomstick or a magic spell was his goal, but regrettably he fell victim to the outbreak of chrisms, poor lad. There's a model of it in the nursery, as a matter of fact. It runs on rubber bands. I expect there was plenty of material around the place unless Rubber Ramkin tied it up after himself, said Vimes. The tour continued, across meadows of what Vimes decided to call cows, and around fields of standing corn. They navigated their way around a ha-ha, kept their distance from the ho-ho, and completely ignored the he-he, then climbed a gentle path up a hill on which was planted a grove of beech trees, and from which you could see practically everywhere, and certainly to the end of the universe, but that probably involved looking straight up with no beech trees in the way. It was even possible to make out the tall cloud of smoke and fumes that rose in the city of Ankh-Morpork. "'This is Hangman's Hill,' said Willikins, as Vimes got his breath back, "'and you might not want to go any further.' he said as they neared the summit, unless, that is, you want to explain to your young lad what a gibbet is. Vimes looked questioningly at his servant. Really? Well, as I say, this is Hangman's Hill. Why do you think they named it that, sir? Black Jack Ramkin was regrettably mistaken when he made an enormous drunken wager with one of his equally drunk drinking pals that he could see the smoke of the city from his estate. He was told by a surveyor, who had tested the hypothesis, that the hill was thirty feet too short. Pausing only to attempt to bribe the surveyor, and when unsuccessful to subsequently horsewhip the same, he rallied all the working men from this estate, and all the others round here, and set them to raise the hill by the aforesaid thirty feet, a most ambitious project. It cost a fortune, of course, but every family in the district probably got warm winter clothes and new boots out of it. It made him very popular, and of course he won his bet. Vimes sighed. Somehow I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway. How much was the bet? Two gallons of brandy, said Willikins triumphantly, which he drank in one go while standing on this very spot, to the cheers of the assembled workforce, and then, according to legend, rolled all the way down to the bottom to more cheers. Even when I was a boozer, I don't think I could have taken two gallons of brandy, said Vimes. That's twelve bottles. Well, towards the end, I expect a lot of it went down his trousers one way or the other. There were plenty like him, even so. All down his trousers, 
Young Sam piped up and dissolved into that curious hoarse laughter of a six-year-old who thinks he has heard something naughty. And by the sound of it, the workman who had cheered the old drunk had thought the same way. Cheering a man drinking a year's wages in one go, what was the point? Willikins must have read his thoughts. The country isn't as subtle as the city commander. They like big and straightforward things here, and Black Jack was as big and as straight as you could hope for. That's why they liked him, because they knew where they stood, even if he was about to fall down. I bet they boasted about him all over the shires. I can just imagine it. Our drunken old lord can outdrink your drunken old lord any day of the week, and they would be proud of it. I'm sure you thought you were doing the right thing when you shook hands with the gardener, but you puzzled people. They don't know what to make of you. Are you a man or a master? Are you a knob or one of them? Because, Commander, from where they sit no man can be both. It would be against nature, and the countryside doesn't like puzzles either. Big puzzled trousers, said young Sam, and fell on the grass, overwhelmed with humour. I don't know what to make of me either, said Vimes, picking up his son and following Willikins down the slope. But Sybil does. She's got me marked down for balls, dances, dinners, and, oh yes, soirees, he finished, in the tones of a man genetically programmed to distrust any word with an acute accent in it. I mean, that sort of thing in the city I've come to terms with. If I reckon that it's going to be too bloody dreadful, I make certain I get called out in an emergency halfway through. Well, at least I used to before Sybil twigged. It's a terrible thing when a man's employees take their orders from his wife, you know? Yes, Commander. She has given the kitchen staff orders that no bacon sandwiches are to be prepared without her express permission. Vimes winced. You brought the little cookery kit, didn't you? Unfortunately, her ladyship knows about our little cookery kit, Commander. She has forbidden the kitchen to give me bacon unless the order comes directly from her. Honestly, she's as bad as veterinary. How does she find out all this stuff? As a matter of fact, Commander, I don't think she does, at least as an actual fact. She just knows you. Perhaps you should think of it as amiable suspicion. We should be getting along, Commander. I'm told there is chicken salad for lunch. Do I like chicken salad? Yes, Commander. Her ladyship tells me that you do. Vimes gave in. Then I do.